discover more compassionate relations with human beings, but how can we develop compassionate relations with the other creatures with whom we share this planet? There's an us before the wound, there's an us before oppression, and let to be pleasure is a way that we tap down into that. everyone. Welcome to the Total Liberation Podcast. I'm your host, Mexi. And today I'm speaking with a very rad academic author and activist, Troy Veteze. He is a Marxist and a vegan and one of the authors of the book Half-Earth Socialism, which proposes a radical and utopian vision for the future to address climate change, to stop the sixth mass extinction, and prevent future pandemics. The vision includes abolishing animal agriculture and having widespread plant-based eating, rewilding half of the earth, and utilizing a layered system of economic and environmental planning. So if you're familiar with my work on YouTube, you're probably aware that I've been rather publicly critical of the half-earth movement and the conventional Western approaches to conservation that have historically evicted indigenous peoples from their territories or restricted their livelihood activities within them and enforced a separation between humans and nature where humans relationship with nature would be mainly capitalist. So outside of protected areas, consuming and carrying on with a destructive capitalist political economy, and then within protected areas relating to nature, mainly through commercial tourism as a place of leisure and recreation, but not as a home. If you listen to this podcast, you know also that we are quite critical of you know, mainstream veganism, consumerist veganism, um, and definitions of speciesism that are not systemic. So we've talked a lot about how veganism to us should really be total liberation, a political stance against the commodity status of animals, and a drive to abolish the animal agriculture industry. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we believe that every single person on the planet needs to be 100% plant-based to be part of the movement for total liberation. For some, they might have systemic barriers to doing so 100% of the time currently, like poverty or other circumstances. Certainly, if we were living in a socialist utopia, those barriers would be uh, abolished. For others, they may have a legitimate medical or health reason. Uh, So even though vegans do point out that a majority of people could absolutely thrive uh, and be healthy on a plant-based diet, we don't want to fall into the kind of ableism associated with some uh, mainstream activism that just leaves disabled or chronically ill people out to dry or just tells them that they, you know, must be doing something wrong. Um, And we are, of course, completely against the colonial kind of white veganism that demonizes many indigenous traditional livelihoods or the reciprocal food systems of other cultures. And we did a whole deep dive into our more systemic understanding of speciesism in episodes 71 and 80, which I've linked in the show notes, so you can check those out. I won't be able to cover it all here, but with an understanding of speciesism as the systemic oppression and exploitation of animals tied to capitalism and colonialism, we are able to combine a fight for animal liberation with decolonial solidarity action and, you know, fighting for and supporting indigenous treaty and inherent rights to practice subsistence livelihoods. So initially, you can imagine I was a bit hesitant reading the book, uh, but as a fierce proponent of radical creativity and being daring enough to actually envision 
a new, more sustainable, more liberated society, and the details of how that could work. I really appreciate the utopianism throughout the book and the very detailed attempt to outline a path forward and also calls from the authors to take up this exercise yourselves. They even say that if you disagree with our particular vision, we urge you to do thought experiments yourselves, plot out viable pathways, get detailed about it, and talk about it. Have these conversations. Like this, this is the work that we should be doing right now. And I couldn't agree more. We're so inundated with doomerism and collective inertia and just, you know, near paralysis in the face of what feel like very big problems and which are very big problems. Capitalism, imperialism, racism, sexism transphobia, xenophobia, and ecological collapse, but doomerism and a lack of radical creativity just helps those in power, and we simply don't have time for it. Um, the book is also quite critical of the colonial nature of, uh, you know, mainstream half-Earth. Troy and I have a discussion in this podcast about, you know, decolonization and the importance of incorporating that into any kind of future plans. So um, yeah, I, I think that this book really includes some fascinating stuff. Um, certainly there's a fascinating history of uh, Soviet central planning algorithms and cybernetics, including uh, Project Cybersen of Salvador Allende in Chile. So I think there's a lot here that people would be interested in. And in general, I just think we had a really rich conversation about ecology, economics, and total liberation. So I hope you enjoy, and I hope that you are inspired yourselves to take up the mantle and do some more exercises and radical creativity, start conversations, start, you know, planning things out so that we have a path that we are excited about and determined to walk towards. So before we jump in, I want to say a big thank you to our patrons for keeping the, the lights on over here. If you'd like to support the show and join our bi-monthly community chats on Discord, please go to patreon.com slash totalliberation, or you can give us a one-time tip on PayPal on our website, totalliberationpodcast.com. And as always, giving us a good rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us gives us a boost in those algorithms and helps more people discover our work. So without further ado, let's get into the discussion with Dr. Troy Viteze. My name is Troy Viteze. I'm an environmental historian. I'm Canadian. Uh, and I, I've studied abroad, I've studied in the UK and the US, and currently I work uh, as a postdoc at the European University Institute, which is in Florence. I, I study a bunch of topics such as animals and energy history. Uh, my PhD was actually on history of uh, neoliberal environmental thought, so really kind of getting into environmental economics and the history of that. And that's informed how I think about uh, eco-socialism as an engagement between different kinds of uh, economics of the environment. And, and then I, I, I wrote this book with uh, a climate modeler, uh, Drew Pendergrass, uh, whom I met during a postdoc a few years ago. And we wanted to basically write something that was different from uh, other lefty and environmentalist books, which we were a bit frustrated with. We felt like a lot of books which would talk about the environmental crisis and then at the end would have like a very hand wavy you know, gesture towards, oh, we can make the world better by changing light bulbs or whatever it is, or green capitalism will save us. Or like a socialist book would just be very vague at how they talked about their socialist utopia. And we wanted to really get into the nitty gritty of, of making a, a socialist framework that really was, um, congruent with environmental concerns and also was more detailed and would tell people how socialism might function or at least think through these problems more seriously. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely appreciated the book so much in in that regard, especially. Um, I'm a very avid proponent of radical creativity. Actually, listeners of the podcast will know that Marina and I used to do this exercise. Well, we did a whole podcast episode where we drummed up hopeful headlines for the future. So basically imagining what kind of headlines we would see in the newspaper if the world we had, you know, wanted to bring about had actually come about. And then we um, spent about a year taking submissions from the audience and had everyone kind of do that, that exercise to kind of flex their radical creative muscles. Um, So I, I really want, I really appreciate the thought experiment in the book. And I share your frustration with a lot of environmental books and even socialist books where, yeah, you get to the end and you're completely right. It's, it's either very vague or something not that useful. And I liked how you said in the book that, you know, even if you, um, you know, aren't fully on board with this particular vision of path earth socialism, um, you encourage everyone to do those kinds of, you know, thought experiments themselves, right. To start conversations about this stuff and to, to really, you know, revive the, the essence of utopian socialism. So my first question, you know, we, we often hear utopianism framed as idealism on the left and set in contrast with materialism and then basically just dismissed. So I thought to kick off, um, could you talk a bit about the importance of utopia and radical creativity and what inspires you to write the book? Sure. I think um, you're definitely right that utopian socialism has a bad name. On the left, I mean, if anything, people use it as an insult, like you're seen as, you know, impractical, or you're not like a real Marxist if you were drawing on this older tradition which predates Marxism. And what I found interesting when I was, you know, researching uh, for this book was just how fruitful and how widespread and how important, you know, utopian socialism was, but also to what degree they really cared, you know, utopian socialists really cared about the environment and about animals. I mean, many of these utopian socialists were vegetarians in the late 18th and early 19th century. I mean, even quite famous ones, like Robert Owen was a vegetarian, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, And people like Shelley, um, or both Shelleys, you know, Mary and uh, Percy, they they both were vegetarians as well, and they both were part of this tradition. And I, 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 I thought that was really uh, illuminating because so much of the Marxist tradition is, is Promethean, as people say, as in believes in dominating nature and is quite hostile to environmental concerns or problems of animal rights. And the, the fact that there actually was like a left-wing tradition that, you know, cared about animals was really meaningful for me as a, a vegan Marxist. So uh, we want to draw on that. And we also want to draw on, I suppose, their imaginative capabilities as in this tradition that would, you know, where people were constantly writing about the future and writing about the society they wanted to create. Um, and that was useful where I think this, you know, uh, what, what Marx is called like the builder for boat, this idea that you can't imagine the future, and that is uh, like a rule of, of, of Marxism, has not pr- proven helpful at all, right? I mean, I mm-hmm. think it, there is something to be said about um, creating, you know, frameworks and blueprints for the future to discuss um, long-term goals, like what are, what are we fighting for, but also as a way to unify broader coalitions, like who are our allies and who are our enemies, and that's a way to, to I think, I really imagine where you are um, politically. So, and, and I'll say one more thing about utopian socialism was that this idea of this hostility between, you know, Marxists and utopian socialists is, is a relatively, you know, recent thing. Uh, I mean, I'm a historian, so recent means, you know, 100 years ago. But I mean, um, 
if you look at the 19th century, if you even look at the writings of, of Marx and Engels, they are not uh, overwhelmingly hostile to the utopian socialist tradition, right? Mm -hmm. If you actually read Engels' you know, famous essay on utopian socialism, most of it is praise for their predecessors, right? Uh, and they recognize they belong to the same tradition. And I think there's a real shift in the late 19th century, early 20th century, where people, you know, where Marxist theorists, they want to cast Marxism as a science. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they, they separate um, themselves from this earlier tradition. And, but I would say this, this is where Marxism is at its worst, right? This idea that Marxism like proves these like laws of history that are inevitable and, and Marxism is similar to physics or whatever in some way. I think that's not what Marxism should be. And Marxism is a, is a philosophy rather than some kind of, some kind of law of how human development uh, works out. So mm -hmm. uh, I, we want to go back to this, this flexibility, this fruitfulness, this you know, interdisciplinary approach where you're drawing on literature, you're drawing on science, you're drawing on you know, many other things to imagine these futures. And um, I also would say that you know, I study neoliberalism. Right? That's my, my main job as a historian is to, to do that. And neoliberals are constantly putting forward proposals. You know, they have their own utopia where it's a society totally regulated by the market. And that helps them imagine uh, and organize themselves in terms of like long, medium and short term uh, political actions and that coheres and I think uh, there's a lot you know socialists can learn from from neoliberals in that regard of course one should be incredibly uh, incredibly critical of, of neoliberals but the fact that this is a, a group that has done so well to reshape the world and their image is is important and you know, one can maybe learn from their success in the way that they had learned from the left's success I mean Hayek and, and many other neoliberals used to be socialists themselves Mm -hmm. So that's that's basically, I think, a short answer. But I, I also would, you know, lastly, it's sorry, a bit long-winded. But uh, the book does say, you know, socialism is imagining futures and debating those futures, and that is socialist democracy, right? Mm -hmm. And then you don't have to agree with us. Indeed, vegan Marxism is a very niche, you know, political position. I'm well aware <laughs> of that. <laughs> yes, um, but we invite people to to give their own proposals, and this these are the kind of debates we should be having instead of these, yeah, frustrating. Uh, you know, books where, you know, we don't actually talk about what we want, right? We should be talking about all the time about what we want and what we're fighting for. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So well said. And yeah, you're completely right about the neoliberals and the capitalists. And, um, you know, Adrienne Marie Brown in her book, Emergent Strategy, really lays that out that, you know, imagination is important. Imagination does shape, um, you know, to some degree, the, the discourses and then, um, you know, the realities that we're living in. And right now we're just living in someone else's dream, you know, someone else's imagination, basically like the, the colonial, um, the capitalist imagination. And to be able to march forward towards a, a, an end, we actually do have to have some vision in front of us that we're walking towards. Otherwise, we're just tearing things down and not really having any, you know, any grounds to to build things back up. Right. So, yeah. And I, and I also think that, you know, the the more recent kind of preoccupation with this binary between idealism and materialism, um, I think it's really flawed as well. I mean, it kind of just throws the idea of dialectics out the, the window um, or the idea that, you know, ideas and the material are always in a dialectical relation. And, um, you know, we need to be making <laughs> making strides in both realms, right? I, I, I would say that, you know, it's, it's just so weird that I think Marxists have this incredible critique and you know, this incredible theoretical apparatus, you know, how capitalism works. I mean, there's a reason why I'm a Marxist, right? But then mm -hmm. you know, their theory of change is just so 
uh, ill-formed or so undeveloped, right? It's just like suddenly things will happen. You know, we have no idea what this revolution will look like. And then suddenly a new society will form, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. just like, like, like that, you have a totally like well-structured, sophisticated theory and something that is uh, incredibly, you know, uh, unformed as well. So, I mean, that, that, that uh, unevenness is just very weird and, and very like, naive at some level. Mm-hmm. And um, I would say as well, in terms of your question about materialism and idealism, I think a lot of Marxists are really like, you know, they're really a vulgar materialist where they say ideas don't matter at all. Right? Yeah. And, I think, and, and that just drives me crazy as an intellectual historian. I mean, like, um, you know, first of all, Marx didn't spend so much time writing books if he thought ideas didn't matter, right? right? I mean, is it, you know, he's, how long did he spend writing capital? And, and then he also has to think, you know, there's, there's a reason why we should understand our enemies, like the neoliberals, right? And I, it's useful to understand their ideas and to not underestimate them. They just think, oh, they're a bunch of dumb lackeys for capitalists or whatever it is. Like their ideas are, are creative and eclectic and strange and, uh, and they have reshaped the world. And I think most Marxists would be like, oh, neoliberalism, you know, who cares? Like a couple just do what they do and they really underestimate the neoliberals and that's why they just lose all the time or they're co-opted, right? Like lots, mm-hmm. of, lots of Marxists or anarchists you know, lefties, they will actually parrot ideas from from neoliberals without realizing that they're doing it. So I think the ideas do matter quite a bit. Absolutely. Yeah, I could not agree more. Um, And it is it is rather frustrating because a lot of that yeah, a lot of that is at the at the end of the day, I think anti-Marxist, right? But it's being uh, put forward under this banner of Marxism, and it, I think it just gets really confusing, um, especially for people who are kind of unfamiliar with the tradition and, and wanting to learn more and, and get into it. So, uh, yeah, you spend some time in the book debunking green growth, which I think listeners of this podcast are very well aware that green growth is a dangerous fantasy. Uh, but you also spend some time casting doubt on and criticizing some things that are a bit more polarizing in leftist and environmental circles like geoengineering and nuclear power. So could you explain why nuclear power and um, particularly some of the more commonly uh, talked about strategies for geoengineering like carbon capture and storage and solar radiation management, could you explain why these things uh, really have no place in your vision for half-Earth socialism? So the book, you know, has several chapters and each chapter is basically building like a foundation for the next and like the first one is philosophical and it'd be it's about uh you know what is socialism how do we know things what is the philosophy and the philosophical foundation that we need and then the the next chapter is like this material chapter where it's like what are the various technologies and policies that we can use to build you know this this uh, utopia and the third is is planning and planning theory and the fourth is a, a fictional chapter so that's how we build up the book and in the second chapter we get into the nuclear question and we uh, we look at it alongside other uh you know we call them like demi-utopian solutions as in you know policies that are put forward that are supposed to you know, solve the crisis uh but leave uh, capitalism intact, right? Did not change the material, you know, foundation of of the political economy that we live in, but to somehow make it, yeah, make it greener, make it stabilize it, and all that. And we look at BECS, which is um, bioenergy and carbon capture and sequestration, which is, you know, that's the idea of like building, having these huge plantations for you no know, trees or whatever, burn them for energy, and then capture the CO two and sequester it underground. And this is, uh, they don't exist anywhere, right? But they're in many, many models uh, that basically are the only way for modelers to make um, 
scenarios of 1.5 or 2 degrees of warming actually work, right? So it's like a mm -hmm. figment of these models. Um, and then the second thing is, is um, you know, nuclear power, which has been put forward by a lot of um, a lot of quite famous environmentalists. I mean, people such as James Hansen, you know, George Mombio, I think goes back and forth on this, you know, Stuart Brand, you know, you know, the Schellenberger, they all are pushing for um, nuclear power because they think that they have to keep energy consumption really high, especially in the global north, and they can't ask people to do with less energy mm -hmm. um but they want to have it uh you know less less carbon intensive so that's where they, they pick nuclear but uh for me this makes no sense at all i mean like the sheer scale of how many reactors they would need to actually make a dent into uh energy production is is enormous i mean right now there's around 400 nuclear reactors in the world and someone like hansen imagines that um growing tenfold over the next generation, which means building something like two, uh, maybe like a hundred or so every every year. And uh, that's ignoring the cost, um, the danger, and the um, and how slow these things are actually done. Like, I don't think we can build 4,000 reactors in, in a generation. And that mm -hmm. would only slightly reduce electrical you know, production rather than all of energy uh, energy use. They wouldn't even wouldn't even come close to solving the problem. Uh, it also ignores the risk. I mean, nuclear energy is is dangerous. Uh, the odds of something like Chernobyl uh, happening again around fifty percent, uh, people estimate, uh, mm -hmm. over the next twenty years, which is devastating. Um, and I, and I really get frustrated when people say, oh, only, you know, so many dozens of people died at Fukushima or Chernobyl. It's really not that that dangerous. I mean, if you actually look uh, closely as, um, you know, Kate Brown, who's the probably the best historian on the subject of Chernobyl, she trolled through the records and she thought that there's at least, you know, 30,000 deaths and could be much, much higher, like over 100,000 uh, deaths caused by Chernobyl alone. Um, mm. Fukushima also likely has killed, killed thousands of people. And Fukushima could also have been much worse had they not flooded um, the reactors to prevent a full-scale meltdown, which TEPCO, the company, didn't want to do. Uh, mm -hmm. then it, Tokyo might have had to have been evacuated, right? So you had to evacuate 30 million people. I mean, like, the devastation mm -hmm. would have been enormous. So, and then the, the people ignore or that you know, car, um, nuclear might seem to have a low carbon intensity, but uh, once you're building so many reactors, you're going to use up all the good uh, uranium ore, and then you'll have to go through uh, worse you know, seams of, of, of ore, and that will raise the carbon intensity significantly. So you will actually not get any benefits from, from using nuclear, which is why a lot of these theorists are really into fast breeder reactors, uh, which use spent uh, uranium as a fuel source and then turned into plutonium, which is you know, you know, basically producing its own fuel. Uh, these reactors, however, don't work. They've been around a long time for decades, and they just catch fire all the time because the, the coolant is liquid um, sodium, which combusts with air. So, I mean, like, if there's any leak at all, they catch on fire. And most of these reactors, again, in France and Japan, you know, they've, they've built these reactors. They spent 90% of the time under repair because they're always catching on, on fire. So, I mean, you don't really want your nuclear reactor to be, you know, at risk of blowing <laughs> up all the time. So, I, I can keep going on and on. And I would um, also say that it's just incredibly frustrating that, uh, you know, we need to have a really mobilized, active environmental movement. And instead, the leaders are trying to make a some kind of like almost agreement with like the with people who don't want to change anything, the most conservative parts of society. 
right? Mm -hmm. And and that is going to demobilize the environmental movement because the nuclear question has been the most successful um, issue for the environmental movement. It's been like that for for 50 years. So I think this is a huge mistake tactically. Um, and then in terms of geoengineering, I mean, geoengineering is just completely insane, right? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, first, like building you know, carbon capture and sequestration uh, facilities you know, would inquire like a gigantic infrastructure around the same size as the fossil fuel infrastructure we have now that we have to build very quickly, but would only capture maybe like 10 or 20% of uh, actual emissions. So it's incredibly inefficient and expensive. Something like planting more trees or, you know, or encouraging grasslands to rewild and so forth would be much more effective in terms of capturing carbon. Uh, and one can look at the work of Vakla Smeal for this. Um, and then in terms of other forms of geoengineering, such as iron fertilization or uh, solar radiation management, where you put aerosols into the atmosphere to cool down the earth. I mean, the, the scientists themselves, such as David Keith at Harvard, you know, he, you know, they openly say that we do not know what will happen if we do this. There's no way to model this or to do experiments on this because the earth system is so complicated, we can only act and then see what happens. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think and, and then this could risk the ozone layer, uh, which is obviously extremely important. Um, it, it could disrupt the monsoon. It would turn the sky white. It would, you know, uh, obviously having less solar radiation would affect plant growth, but also, uh, you know, say solar power you know, facilities. So, I mean, there's a huge number of costs, but it's ex uh, and we don't know what else could go wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and it's extremely risky, but this is very attractive to to capitalists, right? Because it allows the show to keep going on, to keep polluting and and to not actually shift away from fossil fuels. Yeah. Yeah, I did a, a podcast episode on on that and I guess, you know, geoengineering a while ago. And, um, you know, most people are on board, but I did get some some pushback because, you know, this stuff is getting a lot more popular. But you're right, it is, you know, ridiculous. Um, and, you know, it doesn't account for the fact that if we're still pumping up all the CO2, it's going to still acidify the oceans and destroy, you know, everything below this layer of sulfur. Um, you know, I, there's also evidence that, um, different areas of the world would likely uh, be much more prone to drought. And then, you know, of course, yet yeah, without solar radiation, um, the crops, the, the issue that you brought up, I mean, it's just, there's so many things. Well, what's funny is, I think if we talk to, you know, let's say I was talking to my barber about this <laughs> very randomly, mm -hmm. and she was really, really upset by this. I think like there's no real uh, like large debate about geoengineering, but this is almost certainly going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, I, I predict by the end of the decade, you know, as in things are going to be so bad, uh, there's going to end it in it's gonna be so obvious that we haven't reduced emissions and be like well we have to do this to yeah to make make life functional and make, let, let you know let things continue and people will be like oh thank god for these scientists entrepreneurs for saving the day but i, I think it's just going to happen rather than there being a real debate uh and then when people do know about it i think there are more and more socialists for example who are talking about it they tend to get on board with it i mean people like mm -hmm. holly jean buck or i don't know lee phillips or you know there are all these there are these socialists that like geoengineering and i think it's this is again where i think socialists when they don't know much about neoliberalism they are easily co-opted right and that's just because they have this techno fetish they want to have they want to manage nature and, and all that and it leads to a really bad politics but this is if anything i think the more dominant side of of uh of the left right now is this pro-geoengineering and the book is pushing against that as well
Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I appreciate that because I share all of those concerns. And uh, I don't know if you've read uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's book, uh, Ministry of the Future. Um, but in it, he it, it, basically the whole thing is, you know, looking at a fictional situation, but it's in the near future. And it's basically, you know, what what's going to happen in, in terms of climate change and global injustice and things like that. And in it, you know, things get so bad in certain parts of the world that certain uh, states just kind of go rogue and um, just implement it uh, of their own accord. And I think that, yeah, that's definitely something that that could certainly happen um definitely i mean yeah. for, i haven't read the book because i think i think to be honest i think he's a bad writer so i don't oh. really I, yeah, but um i think his idea is interesting but i'm not really into i think i like more literary uh anyways i don't know what you thought mm -hmm. about the writing style but um you know it, it's just crazy where again i, I was uh, doing a postdoc at harvard and they would have weekly you know meetings and seminars and people would be talking about geoengineering and and a lot of it was funded by bill gates who gives you know so much money a year to these groups and people are even talking about like the risk of like a green finger instead of like a gold finger bond villain it's going to be like an environmentalist billionaire who's going to like unilaterally uh, engage with um Mm -hmm. with geoengineering and that's probably going to be bill gates right i don't want to sound yeah. too conspiratorial but i mean uh i think that, that that's a possibility and the fact that you know poor nations right are constantly trying to regulate geoengineering or even ban geoengineering in different forums such as you know the montreal protocol that regulates ozone uh or the you know unep and, and you know for the environmental program they also want to regulate it and it's it gets vetoed by uh brazil saudi arabia the us and and um this so the U.S. wants to protect its right to do uh, to do geoengineering, uh, but of course we're not. You know, we're both Canadian. We're not innocent in this. The leading mm -hmm. geoengineer is David Keith, who is who's Canadian. So I mean, it's and he got his start in uh, Alberta, uh, working with the you know very closely with the Albertan government and the tar sands industry there. So I mean, it's just a it's just a total total mess. It really is. <laughs> it really, really is. So you also include widespread veganism, of course, as a Marxist vegan, um, or at least a, a majority of plant-based agriculture in the model. Um, so I'm wondering if you could explain the ties between the growth of capitalism and animal agriculture and why animal agriculture on a global scale just really can't be compatible with effectively dealing with climate change. Well, capitalism emerged from animal agriculture, right? I mean, you've talked before about primitive accumulation and uh, the enclosures and that basically was removing peasants from common land and and, and, and replacing them with uh, with sheep uh, so you mm -hmm. can sell the wool on the on the global market and this you know there's some really interesting stuff on this and I, I think you know one should think about animals as like a for, as from a capitalist point of view similar to machines right there's mm -hmm. no real difference and there's some really good work by uh, ken fish who's a sociologist at university of winnipeg on this and he's been a big influence on my thinking about eco-socialism and um so you have sheep all of a sudden and then from the point of view of, of a capitalist you basically are uh removing workers and replacing them with uh some basically some uh an investment, which are the sheep, and then you have like a shepherd. So you actually your labor costs are much lower than they were before, and then you're earning, you know, some kind of uh, hard currency. And this is this is the setup. And then by you know the 18th century, you have someone like uh, Bakewell, who Marx writes about in the second volume of Capital, and um, from 
uh, a capitalist point of view, there's no difference between trying to make like a more efficient factory to make locomotives and to be an animal breeder and uh, produce uh, sheep you know, that can grow faster and have more fat on them and, and so forth. And they actually, you know, someone like Bakewell, um, managed to reduce the time needed to uh, rear a sheep for a market from like four years to one year, right? So mm -hmm. for him, like the, the turnover for his capital you know, went up fourfold, right? And again, like for, for Marx, this was is an example of like a basic capitalist action. But um, again, from capital's point of view, there's no real distinction uh, between uh, machines and, and and animals and and fish, you know, Ken Fish, he writes about like the, the real ideal of um, of capital is not the, the factory. The factory is really an intermediate stage. Like the factory is an attempt by capital to create uh, like a body, to create a, a different kind of nature that will produce commodities, right? And that's why Marx is always using these metaphors, these very Gothic metaphors of uh, factories acting as if they were, um, you know, monsters or vampires, and they come alive when they're attached to you know, natural forces and all that. Um, but to go further from this is really like say, genetically modified animals. And, and, and Fish talks about, uh, you know, a Canadian biotech industry that was uh, making um, genetically modified goats that would make uh, spider silk and from their udders. And that, that spider silk would then be used in like Kevlar vests and things like that. And that is like the, the perfect, you know, synthesis of, of uh, a perfect example of capitalist nature, like in a, uh, where capital is, is shaping natural flows towards the production of commodities. So I think, you know, a lot of Marxists, they had this really big break between let's say, the industrial revolution and uh, earlier phases of agrarian capitalism. But I think once you just see it as capital being a system that is, again, harnessing these natural forces, um, and, there, and therefore, there's no real large distinction between, I'd say, controlling a river, you know, controlling animal power, which was what uh, motivated the first move of the first uh, textile mills was, was animal power and then water power and then eventually coal power. But from capital's point of view, these are all natural forces. And even human labor is a natural force as well that has to be put into this um, system of producing commodities. Um, so I think that's an important part of, of, of the problem. And then you also have to see how this has developed you know, more recently, where uh, you know, the animal industry is huge. Uh, maybe it's not worth a huge amount in terms of GDP, but in terms of its impact on the earth, it is the, by far the most important single industry. Uh, around you know, 4 billion hectares of, of land is, is dedicated towards uh, the livestock industry. Um, livestock have also become much more productive, again, as these kind of living machines. I mean, the amount of, you know, the amount of eggs or, or milk these animals can produce has gone up you know, exponentially over the last century. And I think this has to be included in any kind of analysis of eco-socialism. And then socialists have to think, you know, what should our relationship to nature be? Right? Like, uh, should mm -hmm. what? What should we? We should. What, what should we do? And and this is not an obvious question. I mean, if you talk about utopianism. If you look at Thomas More and his writing on utopia, uh, you know, five centuries ago, he imagined uh, his utopians having uh, factory farm chickens. Right. So I mean, <laughs> that's that's not great. Right. And mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, but I think you know, capitalism emerged from the countryside and really has to, to die there as well. And then the socialists have to imagine what is like a socialist kind of agriculture that will have a better relationship uh, to the land and to animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
I think that a lot of Marxists don't really pay enough attention to the fact that, as you mentioned, the birth of capitalism, it was so intimately tied with the birth of commercial agriculture and particularly animal agriculture. And then, of course, imperialism, colonialism, you know, the drive to expand markets around the world has also been so tied to um, the acquisition of land for animal agriculture, you know, colonialism. I, I think you did mention in the book um, talking about kind of these Lockean notions of property and how um, the the colonists coming over, if they could transform the land into something that was quote unquote productive, which usually meant, you know, clearing land and setting up animal agriculture, then they could claim that as their property. Um, and so yeah, the, these systems are so, so intimately tied. Um, and yet we don't we don't often hear about that from Marxists who are not vegan or um, who don't really think about animal agriculture in the same way that, that they might think about the fossil fuel industry or, um, you know, other colonizing industries. So, yeah, I think those links are very important. And, um, of course, as you mentioned, the scale of animal agriculture today is just so... I mean, just in general, it's not a sustainable system anyway for all of us to be the secondary consumers. But I mean, the way that the industry operates and I, you know, <laughs> listeners of this podcast are probably very well aware of that. If you're if you're new here, you can check out all of our other, uh, you know, uh, work on this topic. But I think you make a really great case in the book for why uh you know, the models for a sustainable future, especially one where, um, you know, it isn't some Malthusian plan to get rid of half the population or whatnot, would require the abolition of animal agriculture on a global scale. So um, very much appreciated that in the book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, at first, it is really frustrating where people, I mean, I think like socialists now, like talking about climate, and of course, they were really slow coming to this party. I think like we only really have like a rise of a real work on this over the last you know, 10 years or so before that it wasn't very much on it. And then, and they'll say, oh, you know, we have to reduce emissions and all that. But then they'll say nothing at all about the biodiversity crisis. They'll say nothing at all about animal rights. And then, uh, and they won't talk about animal agriculture as uh, like a huge problem, which is like 20% of emissions, right? Mm -hmm. Let alone all these other problems that it causes. And, and, and of course, like the brutality of it. Um, um, and if you do say anything like that, then they'll think that you're being a reactionary or, or I don't know what. And of course, most Marxists don't you know, eat meat. And they and there's a huge amount of, uh, I think, bad blood between uh, animal rights people who tend to be utilitarians and then Marxists who are you know, very opposed to utilitarianism. So it's, mm -hmm. it's uh, depressing, but I think also this incredible way of actually turning off one's critical faculties in the same way that Marxists often can be very bad about racism or sexism and, and, and so forth, right? Where they think mm -hmm. there's only like one kind of oppression that, that matters. Vegans could be pretty bad about those things too. <laughs> In, in, in the book, in the book, we're hard on everyone, right? I think everyone yeah. gets annoyed with us. Uh, we're hard on conservationists, hard on socialists, but I think everyone should have some kind of you know, critique, and then hopefully that actually allows them to be bound more closely together, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why one aim of the book is there are all, all these different groups, but because they have these different worldviews, such as you know Promethean, uh, kind of Hegelian. Um, you know, approach of, of Marxism versus the Malthusianism of environmentalists or the utilitarianism of, of uh, animal rights people, they, they, don't, they don't come together at all. And, mm -hmm. and, the, and by themselves, they won't achieve anything. 
Yeah, no, that's so true. Um, so some of the most interesting parts of the book for me, uh, were the explorations of the Soviet planning, math mathematicians, and cybernetics. Uh, so this is a very big question, but I think that listeners will be really interested in this stuff as well. So could you summarize the work of Nurath and Kantorovich and how this work could be used in environmental planning today? Sure. And I, I guess I want to relate it a little bit to your video on Half Earth uh, before, because I think you, at the beginning you get into the problem of externalities, right? Mm -hmm. And how capitalism is always having external, you know, externalizing its costs and so forth. And to me, and I, may, I have perhaps some problems with that approach because it's, you know, again, I study environmental economics and this, this is you know, basically neoclassical economics from the 1920s with Arthur Pigou and this idea that if only we priced nature or if we internalize those costs then we would have I guess the optimal amount of environmental harms and mm. I think someone like uh and please disagree you know please push back and and <laughs> uh and someone like Neurat I think is more interesting at some level because he says that you can't have uh, any kind of system be it philosophical or economic that reduces things to one metric right because the world is such a, a messy place and you have to worry about ethical social environmental you know whatever all these other considerations and there's and they're incommensurate with each other so the only way you can make up a like a rational system is to look at their totality right so it would be you know like the the best kind of environmental policy i think we can have is not necessarily trying to price externalities mm -hmm. which would still allow have some kind of like, the money being or you know or whatever it is a utility or energy it could be whatever you want to to cohere all these different things where you can trade off like so many whales to so many chickens or, or whatever it is um instead you want to look at like, what is the society we want and have these total plans and then compare them uh, and give them to you know, to the public and then have a debate and then vote on these these plans. Um, that is the Neuratian uh, approach, right? And so Neurat, he is a philosopher of science. He's also an economist of ancient Egypt, <laughs> which is kind of random. Uh, and, that, and that's why he's interested in what he calls uh, natural economics or in natura economics, which is based on physical units or so different things um rather than having a single metric and this was helpful for him when he became a war planner during world war one for, for austria hungary and he because from a point of view of, of the military it doesn't matter how much like your battleship costs right i mean that money doesn't tell you anything instead you care about you know how far your guns can shoot how fast your engine is how thick your armor is and all these things are incommensurate with each other right you don't want to maximize this one thing that doesn't that does, that's not a rational outcome. Um, and similarly with like a war economy, you want to have like so much food, so many you know, munitions and so forth. Um, and rather, and the market is not good at dealing with these kinds of problems without having a universal metric. Instead, you need war planners to I think, kind of imagine the whole economy. And that's what he did as a planner. And then after the war, he was the head planner of the Bavarian Soviet Republic, which is the short-lived experiment in Munich uh, where socialists took over and tried to make uh, their own socialist plans. And he wrote a memorandum in how he would imagine uh, socialist you know, economics to work. And, and he would just extend you know, this, his experience from war planning to, to peacetime 
and uh, with these these total plans and this uh, memorandum is actually what starts the what we call the socialist calculation debate which is the exchange between socialists and neoliberals that has been going on since 1919 and then Mises uh, who was a, a, a mentor of Hayek uh, he attacks uh, Neurath and then there's an exchange that goes on really to the present um, so that's that's his approach, but that wasn't really liked by other socialists, which actually who actually feel more comfortable with market mechanisms. So by the 30s, you have something called market socialism, which uh, is this use of neoclassical tools that we were talking about earlier to try to uh, rationally you know, or efficiently plan an economy. But we we are critical of this approach because we do think it is useful to look at um, these incommensurate. Uh, problem. So for example, let's say if we just cared about CO2 emissions, then we might actually destroy very biodiverse places and put up eucalyptus plantations and try to like, suck up as much carbon as we can. But that's ignoring, you know, <laughs> this biodiversity loss or, you know, mm -hmm. maybe soil erosion and, and many other things that could happen. I mean, uh, Rebecca Lave, who's a, a a prophet in Bloomington in Indiana. She writes really well about the limits of um, stream restoration, which are based on on these on a single metric, right? Which is generally comes down to a geomorphology of, of, of the stream rather than all the other characteristics of streams, which is you know, it's like a temperature, it's speed, and what biodiversity it has, and so forth. So like nature is messy, right? Similarly, how society is messy, and then having the single approach is, is not good enough. So this is why we're we're Neuratians. And Neurat is also an interesting socialist because he is a self-proclaimed utopian socialist, and he says that socialism is the conscious control of the economy, right? We have to consciously decide what we're producing and, and rather than having the market determine that. And then we will have, yeah, these total plans to make uh, the economy visible um, to people so they can control it. And then he actually developed something called isotype, which is this graphic design language that would try to display the economy to the working class. So he actually ran a museum. People would come in and they could see, you know, what is the Austrian economy producing in terms of, I don't know, electricity or in terms of, you know, shipping or whatever. And by having these, um, you know, easy to understand graphics that actually were based on hieroglyphics okay, because he was an Egyptian, you know, uh, economist. And this is the complete opposite of neoliberalism, right? Neoliberals have to argue that the, the market is too complex to understand and to control and is impossible, you know, to really see, right? And mm -hmm. uh, so th this, I think, is a useful way to answer the question of what socialism is. Um, the question is, how do you do it, right? And he didn't have very good planning um, techniques available to him at the time. The mathematics hadn't advanced, you know, as far as it has today. And, and during his own lifetime, you have someone like Leonid Kantorovich, who was a Soviet mathematician, and he develops uh, linear programming. So linear programming is is something quite useful for this Neuratian problem where you're trying to optimize you know, several things at once instead of a, having a single thing you're trying to optimize. So his problem was he was working uh, in, in, in Leningrad and then he has a couple of people from the local plywood factory come in um, and they say, you know, we want to maximize our production, but we don't know how, because they have so many lathes and you have so many, you know, saws and, and you know, polishing tools and so forth, but they all work at different rates, 
right? They mm -hmm. only can do like so many like, meters of wood per hour, but they're all differently. So you can't just, you know, have all of them go at the same time because they need more doorknobs than doors or whatever it is, right? So the question of actually um, maximizing production based on these constraints was an extremely hard problem to solve based on existing techniques. And then he comes up with linear programming as a way to more efficiently figure out this problem. Before it would be typically like a million equations would be impossible to solve without computers. And he worked out a way to figure it out where he could work it out in a, an afternoon with just a pen and, and paper. And this is, and then he, he then used that technique to um, develop uh, to optimize production for various industries or factories. And he wanted to eventually uh, use it for the whole Soviet economy, right? Um, but that wasn't allowed because the planning bureaucracy at the time, Gaz plan, they felt that that was a threat to their power because basically the, the Soviet state gets its power from its control over production and, and distribution, right? So you make pacts with the different allies, I guess, within the state uh, by distributing so many tractors or so much grain or whatever to different regions. And actually having something like linear programming would take that power away from these bureaucrats because instead of them deciding, you would have as a people decide on a plan or certain goals and then figure out what's the most effective way to achieve those goals. So it never was carried out uh, in the Soviet Union which is why we argue in the book that democracy, of course, is extremely important for socialism to, I mean, it's important in its own right, but it's also important uh, for planning uh, to be carried out efficiently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, I guess I'll start at the beginning. Um, no, I, I completely agree with you, read the externalities discussion. I mean, I use it because I think it is um, really useful for people to grasp how the capitalist economy just does not, I mean, first of all, that it produces like, quote unquote, externalities, but that it's also just incapable of um, you know, accounting for them um, in terms of, you know, in, in our GDP, it would count for a positive most of the time, right? Um, but you're right that if people take that as, oh, okay, well, the solution is just internalizing those externalities, I think it's important to also bring in um, uh, Fletcher's work on decoupling, um, which I think just makes a really clear point, which I, I, did, I brought up in the video as well, um, that it's, it's not possible to internalize those externalities within a capitalist system, like it would um, you know, hinder growth, or it would cause such extreme inequality, the prices of things would rise to such a degree, it just, you know, it would tank the entire system were that to actually happen. So the point is that it's not possible within this system. So we need a new system. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you that I guess that that conversation can get a bit dangerous. Um, if that's kind of the route that people want to go down. Um, but thank you for explaining this. And I, I apologize for completely um, butchering uh, Neurat's name. <laughs> Neurat. Neurat, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I find this all incredibly fascinating. And um, I didn't know a ton about, you know, their work before reading this book. So can I, can I jump in for one oh, more? Oh, sure. Second? Yeah, um, I would also say just to clear up about the externality, you know, question. There's basically three ways to internalize an externality, right? So a neoclassical economist would say like a someone has to tax that 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 cost, right? You know, like mm. a carbon tax, and then hopefully the economy will be in equilibrium. A neoliberal would say you have to create a market, like a cap and trade mm -hmm. market, that would then then the market would price that externality right? right and then a socialist i would say would it would internalize it by including it within the plan and the and parameters of the plan right mm -hmm. and then that's uh, for me that and that's like the more neuratian uh, approach mm -hmm. um and then i would say uh so we have these kind of basic tools where at first you have like a 
a discussion about, you know, what are our total plans? Like, what are our goals that we want? How much carbon do we want to emit? How much land do we want to rewild? What are the living standards people should have? Like, how many watts of energy? How much meat do they eat? Or, or you know, do, or what kind of transportation you know, do they use? And then, uh, and then you can use linear programming to figure out a lot of the stuff. And, and Drew, you know, my co-author, he actually made a, a simple linear programming model to figure that out. And he actually walks through in the book, you know, a, what what is possible or not and this again is the Neuratian exercise and the utopian exercise of imagining futures because we get a debate right now amongst ourselves like oh you know, nuclear is good or you know, geoengineering is good or you know you're, you're consuming too much even SCV and but I think this is all uh you know separate and, and fragmented and we can't imagine how it relates to the whole right mm -hmm. so it's you have all these dumb discussions at some level about you know people's various consumptions and various technologies that will save us and i think the the eco-socialist or the anoiratian approach that we advocate in the book is like we need to look at these in, in the totality and then see if it's actually useful or not like will this actually would electric cars actually save us or not mm -hmm. or like would you know you know like little humane meat or you know whatever you know whatever people are into with that with that uh, what what cost would it have and so these linear programs are helpful and we made you know we made a video game that will help people visualize these relationships and i think again like making uh, the economy visual is um is the Neuratian and socialist goal and that is part of like socialist democracy and then later on there's plenty of other tools I and mean, we talked a bit about you know programming there's also cybernetics that were developed in the 60s and 70s mm -hmm. you know, chile and cyber sin is a good example of this and then my my co-author you know he's a climate modeler and he's and he can say a lot more than i can about using various data assimilation techniques to constantly update these various models right to, mm -hmm. to make sure that they're they're running reliably and these are the ways we can plan you know i say i have a global plan so for different regions to achieve various goals such as making the half earth as a 50 percent of your area should be protected and so forth or what is your carbon quota right and then those regions can then plan more effectively uh because uh, they will probably know, you know, where should I put solar panels, you know, here or there, or should I go do wind turbines? And they can then um, carry out those plans at a greater detail, the lower uh, you go down uh, the planning hierarchy from, from this global to, to the local. But I would still say you need some global parameters. And this is where, you know, some anarchists or maybe some, some socialists will have some, some trouble with, with the argument where they think there shouldn't be a global plan, but certain goals can only we saw globally, we would argue, but this is like mm -hmm. the way we imagine uh, uh, eco-socialist uh, economics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I loved how, um, I guess you said it was Drew in the book, really pinned down different scenarios and used, uh, you know, different metrics to think about, you know, what would be possible if, you know, if let's say the the cap on energy usage was this per person, then what could we do in terms of, I don't know, you know, land for biofuels versus uh, agriculture versus whatnot. I found that really, really um, fantastic and important and just something that, yeah, I don't really see many other socialists doing. Um, and I just, you know, thinking now, I was just like, yeah, where are all the contemporary, I mean, I'm sure they exist. I don't really, I'm not really familiar with their work, but, um, you know, contemporary mathematicians who are working out this problem from, from a socialist lens. I don't know if you 
are aware of anyone who's doing that now, but I feel like this is certainly, I, I always think that in terms of technology, you know, where are all the socialists, uh, you know, building leftist tech platforms, building leftist, you know, mathematical models for solving these problems, because, um, yeah, I mean, this is, this is the work that we should be doing, not, not infighting on Twitter about this or that, but, um, Anyway, uh, yeah, you're, completely, you're completely right. I mean, yeah. like the IPCC reports, and I'm sure your your listeners have read them at least in part. I mean, I don't read every single one, but yeah, because uh, they, they're so huge. But I mean, like these scientists are like so close to becoming socialists, right? They keep saying, mm -hmm. you know, vested interests are preventing change. We need to, you know, yeah, cut meat consumption we need to cut energy consumption we have to rebuild cities and change planning to make them more pedestrian friendly and they're you know they're incredible you know we need drastic changes to society but they don't have a language of socialism because it's just like the the, the connection between socialists and scientists has been completely broken right mm -hmm. and it was an extremely strong alliance in the mid 20th century i mean people like hayek and other neoliberals were obsessed that most engineers and social and scientists were socialists at the time Right. And and lots of these scientists were also like Marxist theorists. I mean, like Holiday and Bernal, and there's a whole tradition of, of like Soviet and, and British uh, uh, socialist uh, scientists. Right. Mm -hmm. And that, that doesn't exist anymore. So, I mean, this book is that we, that we wrote is also trying to revive that union uh, of the two. And I think you're right. There's like a huge amount of work we could be doing. And it's also been interesting to see uh, by us going into the history of planning theory is like to what degree um these these are connected like for example a lot of earth system models really comes from like soviet cybernetics from the 1970s right so they couldn't plan the soviet economy because of political reasons but then they went to luxembourg and for the iiasa which was this institute for earth system science and they used their techniques they developed for economics and applied them to earth system sciences that's why we have things like iams and all that right mm -hmm. so i mean there is this this uh you know, this need to build up, I think, all this knowledge and techniques uh, that, that we can use to plan to plan the economy and, and imagine new futures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, so in the final chapter of the book, you really do this exercise in visionary fiction where you take readers through how half-earth socialism might work. Um, and you've been kind of, you know, dropping hints about it this whole time, but I'm wondering if you could give listeners just a, a taste of the vision that you're, you're describing. And this is, you know, maybe also a big question, but, you know, maybe some thoughts on praxis on how to get there. Sure. So we imagine how how people are living in a social society where you know there still are many problems. You know it's still hot. You know there's still climate refugees, right? Um, but there's ways that society is adapting. I mean, for example, energy use has gone down drastically. Uh, we look. We actually look at uh, the United States. So this takes place in Western Massachusetts, and you know, people are debating amongst themselves: Should we have like you know 1,500 uh, watts per person or 1,000 watts per person? Or what is a reasonable amount? You know, different parts of um, the country are being rewilded, uh, and there's also a transition from biofuels, which are extremely energy inefficient to uh to to back to to rewilding because of course once you electrify transportation or once you actually get cars off the road in general through you know trains and things like that then you don't need as many biofuels so we have these debates um you know there's also this idea of like you know who who works and how how do we work everyone has their multiple interests uh people can maybe work harder in exchange for more uh leisure time 
So uh, these are the kind of debates that are, that are also happening. We also imagine that there's um, a planning bureau that develops these global plans and, and that is based in Havana. <laughs> so, uh, and there's also a global parliament, which is in La Paz and in, in Bolivia. And people will then send delegates. Uh, there's actually a character in, in the story who is kind of like the, the, the planning specialist uh, for her dormitory, and she will help develop uh, the local version of these, these global plans. Um, you know, people will complain about certain things. For example, there is, um, you know, there is veganism, mandatory veganism is in place, and some people are not happy with that. There are debates over, uh, I guess, stopping industrial fishing entirely, I think, in, in the book as well. So I guess I just want to say that it's like a, a simple, maybe somewhat uh, Spartan life in some ways, where you don't have a McMansion, you don't have like a big car, you're not flying to Spain for holiday all the time, right? But it's not a bad life. Like we're not, we're not deep ecologists, right? We're not trying to say people should become you know, hunter-gatherers again, unless they already are. But I mean, uh, but it still is enough to stabilize the biosphere and to allow enough space for, for rewilding. Uh, and ensure global equality as well, right? I mean, it's, it doesn't make any sense why people in the global north should have um, much higher living standards than people in the global south, right? So this is mm -hmm. this is all these debates in the book. Um, and in terms of how does this happen, right? So this actually takes place in 2047, right? So 25 years from now. And we chose that date because in the beginning of the book, we have another imagined future which also takes place in 2047. And that's because that's the, the centennial of the Mont Pelerin Society. That's the founding of the neoliberal movement in Switzerland, right? In the mid 20th century. And then we imagine what does a hundred years of neoliberalism look like? And, and basically there's geoengineering, you know, there's like the first trillionaire emerges, you know, there's pandemics, uh, there's a lot, lots of unemployment. I mean, it's a horrible future that we're, we're heading towards. And the end of the book is like, what is this? alternative look like um, and and how to get there is a difficult question I mean in news from nowhere which is a, a book by William Morris you know, he actually has a section called how the change came and this is probably one of the most interesting and realistic uh, attempts to imagine what a socialist revolution would look like and it's like a two-year struggle between the working class and upper class uh, in England and there's like a mix of like a general strike and demonstrations and then eventually civil war Right, so uh, we didn't include that in our chapter, but I, I imagine it would not come easily, right? I, I, I'm not, having written this book does not mean like I'm wildly optimistic that <laughs> somehow the left and like, vegans in, are going to, uh, going to win, right? But I think it's, um, it's useful to think about these things because first of all, you know, when the neoliberals were around in the 1940s, they were seen as a bunch of losers, right? They couldn't get university jobs, that's why they would set up think tanks. People thought they were a bunch of cranks. I mean, the dominant philosophy was you know, Keynesianism and the welfare state and all that. But mm -hmm. because they they had this, this vision and because they had worked out a fairly consistent you know, philosophical system and they managed to translate these principles uh, from you know, epistemology basically into, into practical policy, they were able to take advantage of crises when they emerged. So by the 1970s, when you had the first oil crisis and Keynesianism's really falling apart, they could really step into the breach and say, here are 10 different things you can do to revive the economy. And then they, they won the battle of ideas there. The left and environmentalists have not done that, right? So we have had repeated 
crises. Like 2008 was bad, obviously Corona was bad, but we have not been able to take advantage of these crises because we haven't done our homework, which is what is, you know, what is the environmental philosophy we believe in? What is socialism? How do we, what are we working towards? Mm-hmm. Uh, and how do we build up a broader coalition? I mean, neoliberals are a small part of the right. You know, not every conservative reads Hayek and all that, right? But they managed to, and they're within like a broader coalition of, you know, say fascists or paleoconservatives or neoconservatives and so forth. And they managed to cohere and guide this coalition because they are so intellectually dominant in some ways. And the, the, again, there's no force like that that can coordinate like a broader coalition of you know, feminists and anti-racist activists and uh, you know environmentalists and, and socialists and all that and if anything we you know Drew and I've been talking about this is like I think the Black Lives Matter movement shows how important utopian demands are right the only real movement that's really gotten off the ground recently has been Black Lives Matter and prison abolition because these are real big goals that requires us to imagine a new society and to build it up you know from the ground up right mm-hmm. and it really inspires people and it can cohere like a large coalition so i think we have to be doing more of this kind of utopian work um mm-hmm. and then i'm sure it's not going to be easy if we ever get that far again i it's it's really disappointing that you know, we wrote a book on you know half of socialism and and people seem to be more hung up about the veganism than about the feasibility of actually planning the global economy to me that's going to be a lot harder uh than you know eating eating soy instead of eating a steak right mm-hmm. uh, and we're having really petty petty debates um but i think if we ever let's say cohere a broader coalition and develop the tools we need to manage an economy without markets right to really imagine like a post uh, capitalist economy then it's going to be difficult right i mean capitalists are not going to give up their power i mean we just have to look to chile in the 1970s where you know allende he did everything by the book everything was legal but he still you know it still ended very bloodily right i mean i don't think we should be naive about that yeah absolutely really did appreciate the uh i guess you know as you called it spartanness of the of the vision um because i do find it frustrating um when there are kind of these grand visions but they really imagine that uh we can have this kind of you know super luxurious space communism uh where basically everyone in the global north uh could just keep living the way that they are living keep consuming at the rate that they're consuming or even increase it and start to live like you know billionaires but just be socialist and and that somehow that's going to be environmentally sustainable or feasible uh where you know most of the global south doesn't even enjoy like a, a fraction of that uh you know, quote unquote development at this point. Um, so I really did appreciate, I guess, the the reality of it um, and how kind of down to earth it was. And um, as you mentioned, all the, the debates that were included in there. So uh, I had a few questions. Uh, one, I, I'm really interested in this idea of energy limits. And you talk in the book about a 2000 watt society where everyone would be allocated 2000 watts of energy consumption. So in the global north, we would be reducing our consumption and in global south, uh, many or most would be increasing it. And I've heard this concept in climate justice talks a lot. So, you know, those who overconsume are going to degrow. Those who consume very little have room for more, you know, quote unquote development. But I guess I'm wondering, you know, how how would this work practically? Like, how would this be measured on an individual level? And then how would these limits be overseen and enforced? That's a good question. I mean, I was thinking um, there is maybe... 
harder ways or easier ways to do it. There's a nice book by Gokche Gunnel called A Spaceship in the Desert, which is about Mazdar, which was this eco city um, developed in the United Arab Emirates. And they were all, they were trying to develop like a currency for people, to, like an energy currency that people would use at different different times and different ways to, to for their consumption. But it just kind of led to this like crazy surveillance capacity where you know the, the building management knew what you were doing all the time, which isn't mm -hmm. ideal, obviously. I think you know for me, uh, I would be more sympathetic towards us planning you know, um, let's say people are given a mandate and then you know neighborhoods or towns would come together and discuss how they would try to reduce consumption down to that level mm -hmm. and then also change uh, the physical infrastructure because it's easy to say well we know people shouldn't drive as much but then it's like well how do we actually change cities to actually make it possible for people to to get around without cars right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and then it's also like what is the easiest way to cut uh cut consumption so probably you know I think we, people would discuss and be probably, you know, flights be the first thing to go. And so maybe we should give people more vacation so they can take longer train rides or, or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then it would be a discussion about, well, how should we build and changing building codes and then trying to, you know, change. So I think having passive housing, of course, is extremely important. That's like building a house that doesn't need much energy to heat or cool it and so forth. So I think it would be a discussion based on changing, I think, the, the infrastructure and also the opportunities available for uh yeah for meat consumption or for travel and all that so i think mm -hmm. like a mix of things and looking maybe at its totality would be better than trying to micromanage people's mm -hmm. everyday lives which uh probably wouldn't, wouldn't work as well and probably would lead to some kind of dystopian outcome <laughs> but if you you know even right but i mean which is of course like a big worry when you're like, politicizing consumption and politicizing mm -hmm. the economy mm -hmm. but uh but yeah i think that would be my guess and i think it, it's a nice uh concept the 2000 watt society because first of all if again if you run like drew's linear programs like you can't have energy energy consumption be that high without running into a lot of problems i mean like again we can you can disagree with our prescriptions in the book which is basically having energy quotas veganism uh rewilding right and but then you have to have a trade-off somewhere Right. Mm -hmm, so if you say, mm -hmm. well, you want higher energy consumption, then you're going to have more, yeah, more nuclear, more fossil fuels, or right? you have to rely on geoengineering and all that. And then that that trade off should be uh, should be apparent and should be part of the the discussion. Mm -hmm. um, and I, but I don't think it would be a bad life, right? I think you would yeah, you live in a passive house, you wouldn't eat meat, you wouldn't fly very often, you wouldn't have a car, but I think you still would, you know, you could still go to the go to the bar and have a pint and, you know, have, or go for a hike. And you still can have a, you know, you can still read a book and you still can have a lot of, uh, okay, you still can have a rich life. And this is where the book is, I think, different from other socialist or environmentalist books. I mean, for example, uh, you're talking about Falk and as a fully automated luxury communism stuff and all that. Mm -hmm. and, and it reminds me of like E.P. Thompson's work on William Morris. So every Marxist likes E.P. Thompson, but most people, don't recall that he really was part of this utopian socialist tradition as well right mm -hmm. and he, his first book was on william morris and he says that it's just uh you know marxists have been so fixated on uh, gdp and, and abundance because they lack this utopian future of imagining what would life be like after socialism so they can only because there's this void of what what would desire be like what is the good life like they can only imagine imagine more things like more stuff for us mm -hmm. to have and, that, and that's like really a, i think like the whole point of like emancipating humanity to allow us to be like the the best possible people we can we can be it's not to make us into 
like stupid billionaires that we're supposed to destroy. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all, right? So he's talking about socialism has to be about the education of desire, right? How do we, how do we reconnect, I suppose, with our creativity, with our intimacy, and so forth? That has to be part of the socialist question as well. And utopian socialists are a good way to think about these these problems. Um, so there, there's that. But I, um, the, the other the book, you know, people criticize us because we don't engage with degrowth. Right. Yeah. And and uh, to me, I, I find degrowth really frustrating where, uh, you know, they say all this stuff where, um, you know, we don't need as much you know, to be happy and blah, blah, blah. And I agree with all of that. But then the, at the end, they also have a, a super vague uh, utopia or a super vague end goal, which is just, you know, we'll have a little bit less for the good life. But they won't tell you what that is. Right. So the book mm. that we wrote is really saying, OK, you know, what what should we give up? What are the things we have to give up? And let's, let's recognize that. You know, not everyone will like this, right? And I think, um, you know, for example, like I've given up meat. I, I, don't, I don't see that as a loss, right, in my living standards, but you know, some people might, or like, or at least we have a, should have a discussion about. And then maybe this is as part of the uh, the question of like re-educating desire, right? Like, is meat part of the good life or not? And that's a that's a different kind of debate. But I think the degrowth movement is tend to avoid, I think, really painting what. Uh, a, you know, this Spartan society looks like, and our book really wants to get right into the middle of that and, and discuss that, because I mm -hmm. think we need to be talking about that. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we just have these dumb debates where people will just accuse us of, you know, uh, you know, no one will like uh, this society because they want to have lots of stuff. And I think, you know, like, for example, like Matt Huber, I think is like very much against this kind of approach, for instance, because mm -hmm. uh, he thinks people won't vote for it. But I think it's, it's uh, a bit, you know, condescending to think that people won't uh, can't, can't, can't see a trade-off between having a, say, uh, an ecologically stable world and have more leisure time and, and so forth versus having more stuff. And these are the debates we should be having. Right. And like, okay, so people would rather just die and burn and have like a, a horrifying dystopian hellscape, you know? So... <laughs> But they get to eat meat and get to have yeah. their cars. If you give, I think if you give people those choices, they they it makes the like the Spartan vegan society much more attractive, right? Yeah. And and that's that's part of the socialist uh, you know gamble, like this Neuratian gamble, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like if if those are the choices, I think people uh, the the issue is that people haven't seen these models, right? People don't know well what are the trade offs, uh, you know what is possible, so. Yeah, given that, they might just think, well, no, maybe it won't be that bad. Maybe I could just keep everything the way that it is and just keep, you know, even growing economically and things will be just fine. But if you actually, you know, if people are actually informed and then they get a chance to make a decision, I think you're right. You know, democratically, we can decide on much better courses of action. Well, it's just like, I mean... I don't know how much you're on Twitter, but there's always like this stupid viral tweet where it's like, oh, you know, why should I, you know, give up my car and give up meat if billionaires are going to be flying their private jets? And the thing mm -hmm. is, like, there's truth to that, right? Where it's mm -hmm. like, yes, I mean, uh, obviously we shouldn't have billionaires that are destroying the world, right? But mm -hmm. then, like, I think a lot of people read it as, well, my consumption is ethically fine. You know, like whatever I do is fine. I don't have to think about what I'm doing. And like the real solution is like, no, we, we have to consciously and collectively decide what these these limits to our consumption should be, right? Should we have mm -hmm. meat or not and all that? Uh, and should we have a car or not? And, and I think that that is a position that 
for some reason is not often articulated and to me it's like the most the most obvious one but instead mm -hmm. we get these very stupid debates saying like any kind of you know, consumer or an individual based practice is somehow just neoliberal and that's it and, and rather than how do we socialize that right yeah yeah that's a great point um so my next question is about um decolonization broadly um because part of why I am quite critical of half, half Earth, and I mean, I, you know, as it's presented by uh, mainstream environmentalists um, and, you know, mainstream conservation is its colonial nature and the fact that too often indigenous peoples are evicted from their territories or there's a lot of restrictions placed on their livelihoods to make space for protected areas and, you know, quote unquote, rewilding these spaces that... I, you know, many cultures have actually played a, a great role in producing um, and then, you know, reorienting our relationship to that space into one of, you know, leisure, often tourism, you know, usually it's a capitalist based thing. And then, you know, similarly, we're very critical uh, on this podcast of a lot of, you know, mainstream veganism, especially, you know, these really colonial notions and, and kind of white vegans, which you uh, criticize in the book, which I also appreciated, um, who really demonize, you know, indigenous traditional livelihoods um, and, you know, different cultures who live more in reciprocity with their environments and, and do have, you know, subsistence livelihoods. Um, and we really argue for a definition of speciesism that is uh, systemic. So looking at the systemic oppression and exploitation of animals that's tied to capitalism and colonialism um, and not really putting that in opposition, right? Like we can fight for, um, you know, the, the destruction of our species as world and systems, um, but also stand in solidarity with indigenous peoples and their treaty rights. So I'm wondering where or, or how you see decolonization really um, fitting in with Haffer's socialism. Because uh, especially in Canada, you know, I see decolonization as really land back everywhere and settlers learning to live in the indigenous nations that they actually inhabit in reciprocity with each other in the land. Um, so I, I guess how would, could you envision that working with these kinds of tiered plans, um, especially if they are kind of, you know, global or national in nature? Uh, and how could we still, you know, maintain and respect treaty rights? That's a great question. Yeah. So, I mean, I think... You know, indigenous ways of life, right? Hunting and gathering, that's not what got us into this mess <laughs> that we're in right now, right? So I think, um, and whatever qualms uh, some animal rights you know, theorists and activists have with uh, indigenous people killing animals, uh, I mean, I understand why they feel sympathy and all that, but I think uh, one should respect that way of life and, and also understand you know at, at a more tactical level that uh indigenous people are the best allies you can have in environmental struggles and they have led a lot of environmental struggles lately and uh, the most successful ones uh, have included them as as allies um and then recognize that indigenous managed territory right tend to have more biodiversity than conventional preserves uh, mm -hmm. and they also sequester more carbon right i mean indigenous people they have this you know, this knowledge of what that ecosystem is like and, and you know, what it needs and, and that, that knowledge should be respected and included uh, as well. So, I, I mean, you're completely right that one should be really hard on conservationists, right? Conservationists have a, a bad history. I mean, we get into the history of half earth and where it comes from. And a lot of these guys were, 
you know, Malthusians working with neo-Nazis in the United States, or, you know, a bunch of South Africans hanging out with Rhodesian mercenaries. I mean, they're not nice people, okay? So mm-hmm. that, 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 and I want to be clear about that. And the removal of Indigenous people from the traditional homelands is wrong. I, I completely agree with that as well. Um, I think this idea of, uh, and I think people use the bad history of conservation as a way to just totally write off conservation and be like, mm-hmm. well, we, we don't need to think about conservation then. Con- oh, conservation is bad, right? And I think the, mm-hmm. the thing that we have to think about is we do need areas where certain practices are not allowed. I mean, like, you know, like no dams, you know, no pipelines, mm-hmm. uh, you know, no logging. I mean, we need these areas because they will have higher um, biodiversity than non uh, protected areas. And then mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of species that are endangered only exist on preserves, right? I mean, like preserves have, are, are definitely not the only part of a conservation strategy, but they're an important part and they have proven their uses in many ways. And I think uh, we just have to imagine like, what is a way to um, to do this fairly and, and ethically and so forth. I suppose I'm, I, I would push against you know, some theorists who want to, ha- who really idealize agroecology and they want to have like, this peasant approach where you have like some livestock and, and all that. I, I would say, um, you know, these, as, and they're totally blurring, I suppose, parks and, and worked landscapes. And to me, I, I think you, you just simply can't have uh, certain you know, like, like migratory herbivores or certain large predators in these in these landscapes. They don't do very well. They compete with farmers, and, and therefore, this is the reason why we should push harder for uh, for full veganism apart from indigenous hunting. Um, and I think you know, people they hear the half earth and this idea of giving up half the world to nature preserves, and they think that's a scary prospect. Uh, and I think when you actually you know, do the math at some levels, like how much land do we need once we have energy quotas, once we have veganism, we actually don't need very much land, for even for like 10 billion people, right? Um, it, it's really a livestock industry that, you know, takes up a huge amount of land as well as you know, uh, risking zoonotic disease. Um, that is it is the problem and that is extremely inefficient. But once we give that up, we, and once we actually lower energy consumption, and especially biofuels, then we can we can actually get by with only a tenth of the world or 20% of the world fairly easily, right? So I think that people get scared about this loss, but I think it's we actually have enough space for many of our goals if we make some uh, strategic and, and ethical trade-offs. In terms of your last question about what happens in terms of like parliamentary representation, I mean, uh, I, I can't imagine why Indigenous nations couldn't send representatives to uh, such a parliament, or maybe there would be constitutional guarantees for Indigenous rights and so forth. But these are the kinds of questions we should be talking about, right? I mean, as in like, what is what is a socialist democracy? What are the institutions that we need uh, to safeguard rights? I mean, these these are these are important questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I was thinking because um, you note that. Um, you know, whatever plan we have, like there would be tiered plans, right? So I think uh, a lot of a lot of stuff would ha- would be happening on the local level anyway, um, and then kind of scaled up as appropriate. And so, I mean, if we did decolonize and this was Turtle Island and we were living in the nations that we actually inhabit, and you know, following uh, the the treaties and the the constitutions that we're meant to be respecting, then you know, maybe on the local level, if if these things were you know led by the indigenous nations and um, and you know voted on democratically through direct democracy and things like. That. I mean, that, that could definitely be something that, that works, but you're right. I mean, this, these are big questions, but, um, 
certainly uh, incredibly important to actually think about and talk about and, and do these kinds of um, um, thought experiments. Uh, otherwise, we're just nowhere, right? <laughs> right? And um, and I think people are increasingly just getting frustrated. I mean, I have a whole uh, a whole channel actually uh, called Positive Leftist News, where we highlight wins in the struggle globally, and um, people really, really love it because I think that we're kind of at a point now where everyone knows the critique. Everyone knows. I mean, not everyone, <laughs> but you know, everyone on the left at least, right? Um, Everyone who listens to this podcast probably like we know that capitalism is terrible. We know that colonialism is terrible. We know that imperialism is is awful, and that we need to move beyond this. Um, and we're, I mean, myself personally, but I think a lot of people, especially, are just kind of getting tired of the endless critique and the the doomerism that kind of comes with that. But but the the nothing, uh, you know, the nothing to to walk towards. And um, I think that people. I think, yeah, people are kind of primed right now to to start thinking about, okay, now what? You know, we know we know what's wrong. Now what? Um, so yeah, I just really appreciate uh, your intervention on this. No, it's like, well, what are we waiting for? Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's like you know, fascism is on the verge of taking over in many places. Um, the world is collapsing. I mean, as in like the biosphere is collapsing. We have no time to act before geoengineering becomes inevitable. But we're still writing books where, yeah, we just have vague sloganeering and you know, another world is possible, and that, and then we won't seriously mm. grapple with the hard questions that socialists don't like talking about. And uh, it's, mm. it's ridiculous, uh, I think. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, so you did mention that you came up with a video game, with, which I think is so rad. Um, so I will link a link to that below. I have not played it yet, but I'm really excited to do that. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any any final thoughts that you want to share with our listeners. Yeah, I mean, like the video game is is meant to be this kind of Neuratian exercise, this kind of Neuratian pedagogy of like, showing, I guess, the, the global economy and the biosphere and its interrelations and make that visible uh, for the public. And, and then people can then begin to imagine themselves as like, everyone can be a planner, right? Like everyone mm-hmm. can participate in planning. And that is that is socialist democracy. And then spurring debates, right? Like, do we have yeah, geoengineering? Do we have fusion reactors or whatever it is? And in the game, we, we don't prescribe a certain course right we don't say like you no know, mandatory veganism and energy quotas are the only way to win right or half earth is the only way to win right mm-hmm. uh, you can try you can try whatever you want and uh, you know you can even do malthusian uh, policies if you want right but and because i think we should be having uh, uh, those debates i think I, I see i see some of the comments on the on the steam website because we put it on steam which is like a big video game uh, thing so I don't really play video games so I don't really know <laughs> but um, uh, and some people have been upset about the nuclear power uh, being I suppose like an underwhelming option but perhaps mm-hmm. they should think well, maybe because it's not very good but uh, no, it's, been, it's, 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 it's been a fun project but I think also it's like this has been you know this is like a, way, a place where you know like I'm a historian I worked with a scientist and then we had to work with uh, you know a team of like and there's a musician there's a you know program you know, graphic designer. Um, we had to you know, work with researchers to develop this game. And I think the hope would be the next step, you know, I, I'm hoping to apply to a big grant and be like, well, what would like a, not just a game, but really like a, like a planning interface that someone would actually use in a social society. 
mm -hmm. right? How, and like that would be like an everyday thing. People would kind of, you know, maybe around election time, you kind of play around with your models and submit your models for the global economy or your local economy and so forth. And, and this is how we should be participating uh, as citizens, right? Mm -hmm. in, in a socialist world. So that, that's really what the, the goal of the game was. And I hope people, people like it and uh, yeah. That is so cool. I can't wait to play it. Um, yeah, I just I love the concept of that. And you're absolutely right. I mean, that does like hearing that makes me excited and makes me hopeful that, you know, wow, yeah, what a great way that we could all be engaging, we could all be participating in planning and, um, you know, all dreaming up this future and then and then, you know, democratically discussing and debating it. That sounds just marvelous. So um so thank you so much for for coming on. Uh, I'm going to link to the book and your social media below, but um, could you just shout out where people can find you and find your work? I, I have an academia.edu page, which has a lot of my writing. Um, the book is out. Uh, please write to me. Uh, I can give my email address could also be linked as well. I'm happy to talk to people and happy to preach and, and also happy to speak more about the book for events and all that. We've been doing a book tour and uh, it's been going on for months now and it's been really exciting to kind of uh, spread the word for vegan socialism. So yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. That is awesome. Yeah, I, this is such a great conversation. I know that everyone's going to be super jazzed about it. So thanks again and best of luck with the book tour and uh, yeah, just spreading these ideas far and wide um, and, and just inspiring people to do, do the same. So yeah, thanks again. Thank you.